The first episode of the Nick Barlotta Show. It is debuting on the network. And this is one of the many shows debuting on this network. I'm looking forward to putting this one together, putting other shows together. And speaking of the other shows, we have a um, first time guest for me, Ty. How's it going today? Going good, going good. Excited to be on the show, excited to be a part of the network as it's launching. Yeah, so Ty, for people who are new to maybe the network as of, as soon as they saw my episode, they hit the link and they went right after it. Who are you to DSN? What do you do here? So I am the college football outlet for DSN. I run the podcast, College Football Unmasked. I have two co-hosts, Jameson and Andrew. Uh, We all went to the University of North Texas. Andrew and I are fraternity brothers. And Andrew and them used to run a multimedia sports company, just kind of a student startup, but it got pretty big and they kind of had me on. And that was my first jump into the sports world. Before that, everything I was thinking was going to be legal or political. And that just turned out to be an absolute dumpster fire and uh, didn't want anything to do with that. That just looked horrible. But sports was just more intriguing to me. Like there was actually more positive happening on a micro level and a macro level and you could be a much bigger part of that positive in people's lives so that was kind of my big step into sports now i'm an intern at dave campbell's texas football which is awesome paired with doing college football podcasting because i get to see a lot of these top recruits play on friday nights play on saturday so it's it's a good time it's a a show i'm looking forward to putting together yeah and you know, for those who haven't listened yet, go listen right now. It is on Spotify. It is on, I believe, all the other streaming networks at this point. So go check it out. Go take a look. It was a great episode. Um, but going forward with your with that podcast and going forward with the goals of that podcast, so what what is what do you guys want to do with it? Do you guys want to have, you know, um, different types of guys on that are um, players, coaches? What What is the – angle for the podcast so we're gonna be doing a bit of everything um last week's episode is going to be a typical episode just any given week you tune in you know at the baseline you're going to hear about the games from the week before we're going to look forward to the games the next week and just kind of the big storylines around college football we're going to focus on recruiting as much as we can um up-to-date recruiting news weekly and absolutely i've reached out Uh, One of my former friends was the starting safety for TCU. He's interested on being on. Um, I got a big guest in the works that uh, if that goes through, I'll definitely be making an announcement, but that would be awesome for the show. Um, NFL player might be, might be able to make an appearance here when they get some time, but yeah, I'd like to interview coaches, players, um, and just kind of talk about college football news and everything as it's happening, especially stuff as it relates to NCAA. Um, 
my co-host whenever he's available. Both those guys are in school, so when they're around, they're around, and they absolutely enjoyed it last week. But Andrew, he loves the uh, the gambling aspect. So every week, you know you're going to be getting our bets of the week, what we think, what you should do. And so, it's yeah, it's kind of just going to be an all-around show. Like, at the very least, you know you're going to hear our takes on the week, the week before. And, yeah, it, it's it's a lot of fun, man. It's It's something I'm really looking forward to. Yeah, and... Like, you know, like I just said, it, the first episode, it sounded like it was fun. It sounded like you guys were enjoying yourself. And I can only imagine that's your first podcast. For those who don't know, that was your first podcast that you've done. I mean, you you had the um, YouTube channel that you've run. Yeah. But other than that, like, you haven't, doing, you haven't done a podcast yet. So to know that and going in to listen to it, it was really good. It was really impressive to listen to that. Um, yeah. Andrew and I, I mean, every Friday, usually we've kind of had this thing going back after I get off, after he gets off, we meet up at one of our places and we just spend about four hours talking sports. Um, so that that's a super easy transition with him. I think the thing that was the most fun and one thing we kind of want to challenge ourselves to do every episode is that was a one take deal. Mm. And so that's kind of something we're going for is like one take and our script is very just an outline. Because the one thing I wanted in the show is everything to be authentic. I didn't want anybody to feel like they had to stick to any script, more so just, hey, we're going to talk about Texas OU. Whatever you want to bring to the table, let's do it. You know, I, sorry. I think it's, I think you're right there. I think when you get a script, I think it makes it so much more challenging. So, for example, I've done podcasts this past week, and one of them we had, I wouldn't say a script, it was like a, uh, advanced outline you have yeah. more to it but it was almost difficult sometimes to get like each topic switched over to the next so you have to find that perfect feel of switching over a topic like for the uh, podcast that comes out if you're listening to this it would have came out yesterday um the baseball podcast um we have two of us and a guy that kind of runs the board, does the producing, so he can kind of dictate where we go with it. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, but that makes it easier, of course. But I, I always like my podcast, too, where I would come in with kind of nothing. I'd come in with what I want to get done. Um, but if I was talking with someone like you or talking with uh, a football coach at some level, like what I could have in the summer – I would try to come in with as little notes as possible. And as I learn more on them, pick up off that and work my way into the rest of the conversation. And I think that can be done at all levels of podcasting. So, but like I said, you know, you guys sound very, very good, very clear. And um, yeah, it's going to be awesome. But speaking of college football and staying on that topic, what did you think this weekend of all those games? So this weekend was weird, man. I think that there was it was kind of a weekend veiled in surprise, but when you really look at it, not much was super surprising, right? And I'll start just off the top. The Ragin' Cajuns lost. They've been undefeated up to this point, and they were looking like they were going to run away with the conference. And I still think they will. Uh, Billy Napier, a former guy that was a coach at Alabama, I think he had some time at Clemson as well. He's a name to know around college football, especially as the landscape is getting these new younger coaches. 
man, he has them looking good. Y'all have to remember week one, Louisiana came out and just tapped up Iowa State, dismantled them. Uh, but they got their first loss this weekend, and I don't think it means too much. I think that the biggest surprise of the weekend was probably that Florida State North Carolina game. Mm-hmm. And Norvell getting his first big win. Because um, Florida State, I, I, I mean, I, I don't know how you feel about this, but I can't think of a program that went from elite, top five in the nation, to horrible shambles as quickly as Florida State did. I mean, and that was going to be my point. My point was when you were starting to talk about college football, mine was going to go to North Carolina. So I watched them for the first couple of weeks. And last week against Ver- last week, Virginia Tech? Yep. Virginia Tech, and they had that huge lead and almost blew it. I still saw something with that North Carolina team that I went, this team could be very good. I know their schedule is whatever it is, but this team has a chance. And I saw them coming into Florida State, and all I've seen from Florida State over the first couple of weeks has been terrible. So – I was like, North Carolina, this is their point. Even though Florida State's not playing well, this is still their point to beat a team like Florida State and get, you know, a, a little more name brand to them. But, yeah, I mean, Florida State is one of those one of those teams that – or one of those schools that they went up and down over the past few years. And, like you said, so quickly. I mean, they went from Jameis Winston, national championships, to um, – Who's that coach you just had? The kid. He was at Oregon too. Um, Ooh. Um, um, I know exactly who you're talking about, but was, the name escapes me. He was. Uh, uh, and I mean, I'm an Oregon fan, so I should. Willie Taggart. Willie Taggart. Yep. Willie, Willie Taggart. Taggart. Yeah. And he was awful there. I mean, he was. And he was supposed to be a big name guy yeah. there that was supposed to come in and fix a lot. Yeah. But. Well, it's, it's so crazy because I don't know if you remember the big storyline. I think it was going into the 2017 season, if I'm not mistaken. The 2017 season, week one of college football, everybody in college football thought that the college football gods had smiled upon us because we had Bama rank number one in the nation versus number two Florida State. First game of college, well, not first game, but opening weekend of college football. That's your prime time game. It's the first time in 60-something years that you've had that number one versus number two. And it looked like it was a good game up until it was, I think, the second or third quarter. DeAndre Francois goes out on a little bootleg, and Ronnie Harrison comes from behind, sacks him, tears up his knee. And with that knee went Florida State. Mm. And I hate to say it like that, but that's the truth. They never – recovered from that game and if you remember Bama almost lost out on going to the playoffs because of how bad Florida State was after that win strength of schedule yeah, yeah it, it ended up hurting because they were just horrendous but I think the biggest thing to point to in that North Carolina game is how they lost just like getting the lead blown out of proportion so quickly on them and playing so bad to open up I mean if you do that against Clemson I don't know that you're able to stay within 55 points of Clemson. Yeah, and I think part of the issue with Florida State was I like um, Fisher. I like Fisher as a coach. I know other things went on there, but I like Fisher as a coach. But I think sometimes teams run their guy out too quickly after one or two bad years. 
Because if you look at, I know, I know we're in, you're in a, you're in a league where it's, you have to win at that, especially Florida State. I get it. But to run him out of town when you have guys, if you look all around the league, the top coaches are guys who have just been there for years and years and years and years, for the most part. Of course, there's upstarts, uh, you know, Lincoln Riley, those kind of guys. There's different guys. But look at Saban. Look at um, uh, Dabo now. I mean, yeah, these are absolutely. guys. these are guys that have consistent success. And I think Jimbo is a guy that's proven he can have that kind of success. And um, to run him out of town and then bring in Willie Taggart, who – was at Oregon and wasn't good. And then he goes to Florida State. He's supposed to be this high-end coach, but I don't know why you would think that because he was just at a very good program that's had some success and crapped out. So it, it, it's one of those teams, one of those systems where they should get back to that point because they're a strong enough, strong enough organization, but I don't know. It's – and, you know – we were talking about that before the podcast last week about how hard they fell off. And Andrew was saying, well, what about USC or Texas? And while they fell off, not like, not like Florida state. I mean, Texas has always been relevant, not to the degree they should be. And USC is a little bit closer to that Florida State line, but it's still light years away. Yeah. I mean, USC is still recruiting, right? Like they're still – currently as we're sitting here talking, they're in the running for the number one player in the nation right now, Corey Foreman, strong side defensive end out of California. They're really in the lead to get him. Now, he wants to go with Mason Smith, number two or three defensive tackle in the nation, number 21 overall recruit in the nation. Uh, Mason Smith trending to LSU, but I just don't know how real that is mm. with Corey Foreman looking at Bo Pelini. Um, yeah. But that gets us off of the, <laughs> the Florida State deal. But that's – I just don't – it's such a good win for Florida State, but at the same time, do you think it changes no. anything? Because I think the problem is from their level – they beat North Carolina. It's a great win, but like I said, I don't think that means anything for us of the season. And for people's perception, I know North Carolina was hot, but they're going to say, okay, you beat North Carolina. You know what I mean? So it's a tough swing to go. Uh, uh, I mean, of course, North Carolina, I think, where were they ranked? Six, seven, eight? I think nine? they were fifth. Fifth, okay. It's so, a great win. but Great win, but now North Carolina probably will drop down to like the teens, probably 13, 14. I think if the committee is feeling – I think it's out right now. Let me check. If, but before I check, if I had to guess, if they were feeling really dangerous, like if they wake up on their Baker Mayfield, maybe 15. But yeah. I think when you look at college football and all the teams that are losing and how they're losing, it, it's such a weird year because there's really only four – and we're guessing on one of them. It's a super educated guess in Ohio State. But right now it looks like there's only four really, really good football teams mm. out there. Um, and so everything after that, it's super interesting to see what the committee is going to do because there's so much leeway room. Yeah, and, and one of the teams on in that top is – and I've always – I don't like them. Um, Notre Dame, I, I, it's, it's hard for me. I, I respect them, but I don't like them because I always felt their schedule was always easy. I, I mean, they would add good games in there to play some competitive teams, but 
This year they have, I believe, the ACC schedule because they joined the ACC temporarily. It could be very off on that because they're playing Clemson, they're playing all those teams. So that this is a big year for them. And I know they played who did they play? They played Louisville on Saturday, right? I think so. And it was a close game, and it shouldn't have been that close, but I saw something in Notre Dame where their front seven and their O-line is dominant. I mean, I know it's Louisville. I get it. I'm not going to say that that was a great win, or they they should have won by a lot more, of course. But judging by that first game and then this game, their offensive line and front seven is very good, and I think that can carry in a game when you get to teams like – and if you get to the playoff, you get Bama, you get Clemson, you get Ohio State, where you can kind of take the pace of that game and make it yours and dominate it. So that's one of the teams that's really stood out to me. Obviously, you have the top of the top. You have Bama, you have Clemson. Um, Bama's offense looks great. Their defense looks like it shirted up a little more, finally. Um, but, yeah, I mean, I think that, like you said, the top of the top of this, of this NCA is very good. I just don't know after the top four – what's left and that's the thing and it, it almost creates this weird juxtaposition right because it it, it creates a scenario where there's a 50 percent weight put on both sides right do you expand the college football playoff because that point you just said because you don't know what happens after that top one through four if we're putting notre dame in there one through five right mm-hmm. so there's one argument that says, well, the best way to shore that up is expand the playoff and it will just be good for viewership. Now, while there's no argument for viewership, right? I don't think more college football by a few games is a bad thing. I think the counter argument to that is just like you said, well, you could, but those four teams up front are so much better that if y'all play them, you're going to get crushed. And then what are we doing? Because now it's a blowout on TV. And that might be the only argument for bad college football on TV yeah. is just annihilations. See, I don't know. Maybe oh, no, no, that, that was it, man. I just, yeah. something crazy yeah. to think about because it really puts the weight on equal sides. Yeah, and, and I think years past, I think we've seen – that's the, the issue is there's some years where you look at it and you go, okay, there's eight good teams this year. The, the eight seed or the eight ranked team could potentially make a game for the first team. There's some years where that's the case. But and what would you say the last year that you would take anybody in the general field over and outside of last year, right, with LSU coming in and disrupting mm-hmm. the status quo that has been laid down for the last decade – who would you put in there to come in and overtake a Clemson, Ohio State, Bama? Like those three teams to me are just so far ahead of the college football landscape. I mean, the one team that – the year that made sense to me, that came out to me and I said maybe we can have expansion, the one year was um, UCF. The, I, mean, I agree. They – I'm not one of those Bama fans. Look, I, I do have to be honest. Yeah. Uh, bias aside, I think Bama wins mm-hmm. that game. But I think it's way closer mm-hmm. than a lot of Bama fans are willing to concede because yeah. their style of play historically gives Bama a lot of problems. Yeah, and, and I, think, uh, I think Bama wins that game too. I just think it was more made of a point that 
we didn't get to see if it if it could. But then on that same on that same point, on that same train of thought, there's years like this where right now you're looking at four, maybe five good teams. So you're gonna put three teams on that back end that just aren't good. And then you're there's there, there's no then there's an argument for people that hate expansion. They're gonna say, Well, look at the last three teams, they got blown out in round one. So there's really no winning in it. Um I just I don't know. I, I don't yeah, know, but it's, uh, it's yeah. It's something that it, it seems so simple until you start giving it more and more thought and then you realize like, okay, wait, there's, there's legitimate problems, but solutions on both sides of this thing. And I don't know which way is the more correct way to go about it. And it is wild. I mean, there's what in division one FBS, there's a hundred. I think it's 126. 126. I was going to say 124 maybe. Yeah. I was a little off. I think it's, um, yeah, it's somewhere around there. Yeah, but with 120, 625 teams, the fact that there is only five teams right now that we can sit there and say they're pretty, they're they're good, or not good. There's some there's some teams that are good on the back end. I shouldn't say that, but they're great. The fact that there's five out of 125 that are top top. I mean, they feel like there should be more. There should be more teams that can dominate every Saturday. I feel like with all the good coaches in the NCAA, all the good players that come out and end up going to the NFL and showing out, I just don't understand how we have five teams that we can rely on this year. And here, here's a point I will give you. It's something we talked about on the, uh, the College Football Unmasked. We'll talk about it a bit here because I think it's a really interesting point to think about, and it's, a, it's kind of an ode to expanding the playoffs. Think back to last year and a coach you've already mentioned in Jimbo Fisher right? I think A&M last year had four or five losses. I can't remember whether it was four or five, but I'm going to give you four of the losses right now. They lost to Alabama. They lost to Clemson. And they lost to Alabama, by the way, when Tua was healthy. And that was arguably Tua's most technically sound game as a, as mm-hmm. a member of the Crimson Tide. Mm-hmm. From a pro-style perspective, he put on an absolute clinic that game. Everything was flawless. So they lost to Tua in one of his greatest performances ever. They lost to Joe Burrow in his historical season. I believe they lost to Georgia, and Georgia ended up Mm -hmm. finishing up there. And they lost to Clemson. So was it that A&M was a bad team, or was it just that A&M had to go through some of the toughest football just to get to the end. And because of that, you could argue that maybe A&M was the fifth best team in the nation, but your win-loss ratio will never express that because of who you played. Mm-hmm. And it's not always like that, but it is kind of an interesting thing when you think about expanding the playoffs because there are, there are good teams, like you said, that just won't ever get that nod because of their record. Well, A&M for me this year – as I'm looking at the rankings that was like the, uh, yesterday, they're number seven. Um, yeah, they're a good they're, team. But they're the kind of team that, with the SEC the way it is right now, kind of becoming in shambles a little bit. Yeah. And, you, and you know that Notre Dame has to play Clemson. Yep. So someone has to lose there. This is the kind of team that I feel like can sneak their way on the back end into a playoff potentially if a team like Bama or uh, um, Ohio State – 
you know, has a bad game and slips up. This is a team that Texas A&M, I, I, I don't know. I think they would need two losses from one of those teams, but. They've needed two loss from a Bama because Bama is the team that beat A&M, right? And Bama's yeah. in a weird position because I'm going to pose you a scenario right now. Bama continues through the rest of this year, blowing teams out like they've been. Georgia continues through the rest of this year, blowing teams out. Not blowing teams out, but just dominating teams. Yeah. Because Georgia doesn't really blow teams out. They dominate you. Yeah. I know that sounds like an interesting – No, no, no I, yeah, I know exactly what you're saying. They just control the game. They just yeah. dominate you. Yeah. It's almost – we'll talk about it here in a bit. I just – it's almost like Khabib in UFC. Mm. Like he's mm. just going to make it so unpleasant in that cage for you. That's mm. Georgia. Yeah. Um, so if both those teams continue, right, Georgia's currently ranked four. They dropped from three to four with the loss to Alabama. Let's say they go to the SEC championship. And Bama drops the game in the SEC championship. Today. Both those teams are getting in. And that's the thing. So the, it, it's, it's such this weird position. A&M would need for Georgia to lose in that SEC championship. They'd need Oregon to lose a few games because Oregon is a team out of the Pac-12 that I, I want to talk about Oregon here in a bit because I'm that's, a huge fan. So that's that's my favorite team. Doing. That's my favorite team. So one day I'll, I'll tell the story on how I became an Oregon fan living on okay. the East Coast. But for now, just know I love the Ducks. But we'll talk about them in a second. Finish your thoughts. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> you know, it's A and M would need a lot. Now that is a talented team, and I think something that people aren't realizing is that offensive line is incredibly disciplined in their play. I was very surprised um, to see how well they're able to pick up blitzes mm. and disguised blitzes very quickly. They might get beat once, but they're not going to get beat repetitively. And they're not the most talented group in college football, but they're very experienced and it really shows. Kellen Mond is, mm. is a good quarterback. I think he's gotten a lot of flack for a long time for stuff that wasn't his fault because, like I just said, people look at his record instead of looking at him play, and they think, well, he loses a bunch of games. Yeah, because he played one of the hardest schedules in college football history last year. You're talking about playing Tua Tungavailoa, Joe Burrow, and Trevor Lawrence all in the same season. Think about that on a historical implication. Yeah. Like, are we really mad that you lost to three college football Hall of Famers? Yeah, and, and, you're, and you're talking about three guys who – most likely, let's just say they're all in separate draft classes. They're all going number one. Yeah. If if last year, if there's no Burrow, two is going number one. So and, and no injury. Yeah, and no injury. Yeah. I mean, I still think actually, I I I, I kind of agree with that. I, I think if Burrow wasn't there last year, I think with the injury to Tua, I think Herbert may go number one. But or Young. Um, Chase. Yeah, that's Young. true. That's true. I mean, I. <laughs> Well, let's, let's, you know, let's just say this, though. At some point, Tua probably would have been most likely the top quarterback taken. Oh, you, yeah. you could say it in the same hand as Herbert. I obviously talk about Oregon, but I love Herbert. I thought he was a lot more ready for the NFL than people thought. Um, Me included. I made a video on Herbert. Um, the first video I ever made, it, it kind of blew up. And it was, a, it was a film analysis on Herbert and Tua, and I've talked about it in my YouTube channel. I was wrong 
on mm. Herbert. The one safety net I will give myself is in that video I made it clear that I don't know whether Justin Herbert is the one that's flawed mm. or the system that they're asking Justin Herbert to do just makes it look like there's no way that this could possibly work. Because when you're a quarterback that throws 33% of your passes as a screen pass or within three yards, it's very hard to look at that on a film analysis and be like, okay, well, this is going to project when the closest the NFL has ever seen is 24% with um, Kyler Murray's rookie year last year. That was the highest NFL history screen yeah. pass. So, but hey, the young man is phenomenal. Yeah. Well, I think we're at a point, too, and, I mean, it is crazy with Oregon. You've seen them over the last close to a decade run a similar offense pretty much. I mean, obviously things change. They're different with different coaching. But for some reason, the style of the offense has remained the same through, like, separate offensive coordinators, separate coaches. It's just something about somebody in that organization keeps carrying something over. I don't know what it is. Pac-12. I mean, yeah, it's, it's definitely the Pac-12, but, I mean, it looks identical. If you look at their – not I, I wouldn't say identical, but if you look at their offense from last year and go back to the year they made the national championship, it's different, but not too much different. I mean, there's many things they do that they still have carried through. So, with that being said, I think we're at a point where we have enough guys in the NFL who, offense coordinator-wise or head coach-wise, who are the – excuse me, the um, younger-minded guys, the, the guys that can take the talent and make the most out of them. I think what we had a long lapse of in guys who were offensive coordinators who were more of the school of thought, old school, or they didn't want to take a guy and use his talents as much. They wanted to make him perfect for their offense. Well, now I feel like guys like McVay, guys like Shanahan, they're taking these guys, and instead of making them fit their system, they're fitting their system around these guys. And I think that's what the Chargers kind of did. Chargers are running a modified system. Obviously, he's more under center now than he was in college, obviously. I don't think he was ever under center at college. I don't think he took his senior year. I don't think he took one snap under center. I think his play call was like 99% from shotgun. So it was – it was a very hard film evaluation yeah. to do, and especially when the premise of the video was Tua versus Herbert. Mm -hmm. Who do you take? Yeah. And when the premise was that, and, you know, to be fair, Steve Sarkeesian is just flexing on college mm -hmm. football right mm -hmm. now, right? I mean, that's – but, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. Justin Herbert looks every bit the part mm -hmm. he was supposed to be way sooner than I think even the the most optimistic Herbert fan thought yeah and and like I said big Ducks fan big Herbert fan but I would have took Tua I think I mean if I'm running a team maybe I'm looking more deeper maybe I'm making a different decision but from afar I'm I'm probably even with the injury I'm taking Tua I just think there's too many stories about guys who run that similar system and then go to the NFL and can't go under center they just don't it doesn't process like for example Mariota Mariota had a good first year in Tennessee he was a decent quarterback but he just never the system never fit him right and I do wonder if he came out now if he came out today and got put into that like 49er system 
what he could do with that kind of system with the short passes, the intermediate passes, running the ball hard. I really think if, or even, even, I mean, I, I can't really say the Tennessee offense now because he was just there and didn't do well, but I think that offense has transformed over the last year. But I think so. And there's many teams. I just feel like if you got drafted today in one of those young minds, whether it's Shanahan, whether it's McVay, one of those guys, what he would turn into compared to the start of his career under, I think it was three coaches in five years with Mike Malarkey and whoever else was there. Um, he had a, he didn't get the fairest of cracks at that. I mean, he also didn't, he had chances. It's not like he was a guy that wasn't given chances. So I don't want to say that, but I don't know. I think this, this new age NFL offensive styles are more conducive to guys who are very talented in one system and they can make them talented in whatever system they have just by using their strengths correctly. Yeah, I completely agree. And it's funny you say that because I've had this argument with my old roommate consistently. He was a guy who was telling me years ago, like the Mariota experiment's just not working. Hmm. I held off. He was right. You know, he ended up being right. Very much so. But I, I personally, I completely understand where you're coming from. And there's actually something I was looking at my phone trying to pull it up. Just there's something interesting with you being an Oregon fan and also talking about like just the generality of college football and the landscape right now. Do you follow recruiting very heavily? Uh, not as highly as I'd like to. Gotcha. Gotcha. So every year, there's typically around, if you look at 24-7 sports, that's, hap- that's where I typically go. Um, mm-hmm. They do a combined rating from all the major rating sites. So gotcha. it's kind of like the average. Mm-hmm. So because of that, they're usually pretty good. You know, mm-hmm. it's, a, it's a recruiting site, so yeah. it is what it is. But yeah. on their site, which is the average of like the ESPN rivals and 24-7's own ranking, there's about 31 to 32 five stars mm-hmm. every year, right? Sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, but that's generally what you're looking at. As it sits right now, how many programs in college football hmm. for this coming up recruiting class do you think have multiple five stars committed to them? More um, than one. Well, you want me to guess how many? Yeah. Okay. Hmm. I think it's lower than people would anticipate because I think some teams hoard them. Um, I'm going to say six. This is what's so wild. (laughs) There's four. Okay. Wait, I'm going to try to guess them. I'm going to try to guess them. Bama, uh, Ohio State, uh, Clemson. No, Clemson, no, I take that back. I take that back. Don't but strike that from the record. Um, I don't know the other two, though. I would say Georgia. And because you brought it up at this time, let's say Oregon for fun. No, okay. What was the fourth? <laughs> the fourth is actually a little bit surprising. It's a little bit fun, which is why I like this. It's actually Miami. Oh, I like that. Miami like has um, – actually, if you get time, man, go, go to the YouTube channel and check it out. His name is Leonard Taylor. I did a video on him, and this kid is uber talented, man. Yeah. Uh, he – before I ever looked on his 24-7 sports profile, 
mm-hmm. and I watched him play, I was like, this kid is baby Quinnen Williams. Mm. It's because his hand and foot technique, right, is so elite. Mm. The thing that makes Quinnen Williams so incredible is because he can beat you with less moves because his hands and feet move at the same time. So what usually is six movements, to him it's three. Mm-hmm. You get what I mean? And it's just yeah, so 100%. hard to keep up with that. 100%. Miami has him and then a guy that's a 6'5 safety they have Jeez. coming in. Um, whether he plays safety or not. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. He's athletic enough to do anything. He's quick enough to play safety. Um, I, I, I like him at a few different places, including mm-hmm. safety. But this is the wild part, okay? Georgia has two five-stars. Miami has two five-stars. Ohio State and Bama each have four five-stars. Bama alone is in the running for, I think, three or more five-stars as we're sitting here talking. They're in the running for, I believe, Mason Smith. I don't know how real that is. Like I said, I think he's pretty much well an LSU commit. They're in the running for the number one cornerback in the nation who they desperately need. And they're also in the running for a kid out there on the West Coast, JT Tumalea, defensive end, linebacker, whatever you want to put him at. Uh, the kid's a freak. But Oregon is also in position for Tumalea, Corey Foreman, a lot of good guys. And actually, y'all have who I consider one of my favorite quarterbacks in the class, Hi hmm. Thompson, coming in. I think that's a kid who is incredibly underrated, very, very talented. And if you look at the way y'all are recruiting now, it lends itself that y'all are going to be a national powerhouse because right now y'all have one Mm five-star as it sits right now. But y'all are the number three class in the nation. So the top 10 right now I don't think is super surprising. Bama, Ohio State, Oregon, Clemson, LSU – USC at, at six, which is a little bit of a surprise. Mm-hmm. Michigan at seven, Georgia at eight, Tennessee nine, Florida ten. Tennessee nine is so funny to me because Tennessee, I wanted to get in them before. It's like every season we hope Tennessee's coming back. We think this is the game, this is the week that they're back on the board. We just have this, we just have this feeling inside us that we always want ten. Oh wait, I mean not everyone, but the national national media wants Tennessee to be back every single year. And they're, they're almost at a point where like they're, they may not return for a while, but if you have a ninth recruiting class, they're, they're on the verge. Extend that hope just a little bit. And the only reason I say that is because Jeremy Pruitt is still young in his time. Sure. There. sure. And in his time there, he's brought a different attitude. And right, that's, that's how you have to go about fixing a program like that first. And I think that's kind of where Florida State has gone wrong. Florida State tried to get the best recruits in the nation to come and fix their problem, but the culture was bad. Mm-hmm. And Jeremy Pruitt attacked the culture first. Hmm. And so he, he's getting wins on the recruiting end. He just got, I think, the best, um, one of the best outside linebackers in the nation for this past mm-hmm. class of, Five stars, got another five star this year. That's a really good team. But their quarterback just Well, that's the problem. He is no quarterback play. I mean And I don't know that he will ever know how to do a quarterback, right? Yeah. It, 
in defense of what you're saying, he's just a guy that I think he, whether he's the guy that can kind of get you there, I'm not sure. But I'm pretty sure he's a guy that if you want to rebuild a program, he's a good one to turn yeah. to because he knows what good bones look like. Well, that's like for Oregon. I mean, when, like, when we first got Mario, and I was kind of on the verge of, okay, this is a guy that can rebuild our program back up to where we want it to be. He's a tough guy. He knows football well. He's a good football guy. And he's going to come in. He's going to basically take all the issues that uh, Willie Taggart built and kind of steady those a little bit and remedy the organization and understand that when it comes to recruiting, we have an edge in the fact that, not necessarily an edge, but if you look at our campus, all the facilities we have from Nike, that's all you have to do to get a recruit. Yeah. I mean, if they're, on, if they're on the brink of signing with you, you show them the facilities, you're back. So you needed to remedy the team, remedy the school, remedy, get them back on the map. But I think now we've gotten to a point with Mario where I just think he's the right guy. I just, oh, no I just doubt. He gets it, you know. So it's no weird doubt. how that changed. And the, you know, the way of thinking changed in a matter of two years, you know. Well, look at the way y'all recruited. Yeah. Right. When if I was to tell you that last year, I think last year y'all got three five stars. Mm -hmm. Okay. Mm -hmm. If I was to tell you that none of them played on offense, how surprised would you be? Um, pretty surprised. None of them played on offense, man. Y'all got a five star corner. Y'all got a linebacking duo that I'm not an Oregon fan. But I love defense, mm -hmm. right? So anytime there's a, a, there's a player that's an athlete, right, and he's thinking, oh, cornerback or receiver, mm -hmm. I'm always a little biased. I love defense. I love yeah. watching it. So mm -hmm. I'm always going to want corner. Y'all got a great corner. And y'all got, I think, what might turn out to be the most exciting young linebacking core mm -hmm. in college football coming in. You have the number one linebacker last year, Justin Flo. Mm-hmm. Every team in college football wanted him. He's comped to Reuben Foster, for God's sakes. And I know that name might send shivers down a lot of people's spines, but I think we need to put one thing in perspective here with Reuben Foster. When he was playing in the NFL. For Ari Foster. Third best linebacker yep. in the NFL. Right? Like he had allowed, I think, 1.2 yards after contact, which is the first in the NFL. He was first in pass coverage in the NFL. And the only two linebackers that graded higher than him were Luke Keekley and Bobby Wagner. Mm -hmm. And it was like a 96.3 for Luke Keekley, a 96.1 for Bobby Wagner, and like a 95.6 for Reuben Foster on their PFF grades. Jeez. And that's who y'all's guys comp to. Yeah. And then you get a guy, Noah Sewell, who looks like he should be playing left tackle, mm -hmm. but runs – like he's about to go to the Olympics in the four by 100, right? And he's your other linebacker. And the, it's just a, the, the identity of the team is changing to be much now, more physical. He's related to the left tackle. I believe so. I, th I, I, believe. I, I think they are. I mean, because then my point is that's, that's, a, that's a nice, uh, that's nice guy to have in your family. That's a nice brother because his brother's a monster. Oh if my God. His, brother, his, brother's his brother's the best tackle in the nation. Yeah, and, oh. he really is. and it's and I think I, I I'm pretty sure he opted out and he's not coming back. So I think he's, I think personally, he's, yeah, I don't know why you would. Oh yeah, no, and I 
I said it in the beginning, I gave a lot of credit to guys like Lawrence and Fields. I think they could have easily just been like, listen, Lawrence, for example, I'm going number one. Uh, I'm not worried about it. I don't need to play. Fields, I know I'm probably the number two QB. Maybe I had a little more. He's to a play first for. rounder. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's going to be him, Lawrence, and depending on who needs one, Lance could even be a top 10 kind of quarterback. So he knew where he was going. Fields was going top 10 one way or the other. I think he, he understood that, but they wanted to play and I give him credit. But if I was Sewell, I know I'm the number one left tackle. If it wasn't for Lawrence, I'd probably be the number one pick. So I'm just done. <laughs> I don't blame yeah. And especially when you watch the NFL this year and you see all these injuries, mm-hmm. you just know, like, football is a game, man, where your body has to be prepared for it. Mm-hmm. And I think a lot of people are very hard on these college kids when they opt out. And a lot of it is is simply the fact of it's easy for them to sit here and say, well, you should be working out on your own time. Mm-hmm. Nothing prepares you for the violence of football except the strenuous offseason that you have to do a part of a football team. And mm-hmm. when you don't get that, it's easy to see why in the NFL we have horrible injuries every week because they just didn't get that opportunity. Mm-hmm. See, I've never judged a guy for no for wanting to skip a bowl game. I've never judged a guy. I mean, there's part of me that goes, play with your teammates. But the other part of me goes, if you're a top pick and you know it, I don't even know if I was in a situation, let's just say I was the top quarterback in the country. And I went, my first year at school, I dominated. Or first two years, I was dominant. You knew I was number one pick. I was Trevor Lawrence. I can't tell you for sure if I'd return for my third year. We're talking $32 million. Mm-hmm. And you look at the cases that, have went the other way. You have Marcus Lattimore, who was at South Carolina, who was going to be a, a, a had to be a top ten pick. I mean, he Jalen Smith. Jalen Smith, same thing. So it's those type of cases. Now, for a guy like Marcus Lattimore, I read a story on him the other day. He made a lot of money off that, which it's not all about money. I get it. It's your career, but because he had the insurances on himself, and he actually never technically played a game. He got all those insurances, but that's not the point. That's not what we're trying to say here, but I'm just happy he ended up being a cop. Oh, but, yeah, absolutely. I, yeah. I 100% get it because that's – man, that's a lot of sacrifice. Like, yeah. I, I get it, man, and I think it's, it's, it's one of those things – I completely get what you mean, where you'd always like for somebody to play mm-hmm. only because, like last year, right? Well, I'll speak to my team. When Bama played Michigan – we were without Terrell Lewis, um, and I completely got it, mm. right? He dealt with injuries throughout his career. He just put together a, a good enough year to where he knew he was going to get drafted. Mm-hmm. But he's a guy who's been a little bit injury prone. Why risk it? Yeah. He went to the Patriots, right? He, went, he ended up going to the Rams. He just Rams. got activated. Who was, who was the linebacker the Patriots got from Alabama? Going uh, to Hightower? No, 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 last year. Um, Jennings? Yeah, Jennings? Anthony Jennings. Yeah, 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 okay. Or he's maybe he plays, he plays defensive end now. I think he switched to defensive end. Man, they moved him. Even in, even in Alabama, they moved him yeah. anyway. That's, that's a talented, talented kid. Yeah. yeah. So we started the podcast a bit before talking about some of the NFL things. And mm. I, I feel your pain, man. Uh, I'm a Vikings fan. And I, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm just about all the way out on this Kirk Cousins deal. It's, it's just not working. 
And especially when you know, like, it's one thing when you see him play bad, but when you think of it in the scope of what the team we had were letting fall apart because we chose Cousins over the parts. You get what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Stephon Diggs is balling. And Justin Jefferson was a great pick. I, I don't regret that pick at all. No, I, this is one of the things I want to say for the Vikings is if you can be a Viking fan and just don't worry about wins and losses, just watch Justin Jefferson for the rest of the year, you'll be a happy Viking fan. Buy his that's, jersey, that's where I'm at. Get Justin Jefferson's jersey. Be excited for him. Get every jersey he has. Be, just, be, just be a Justin Jefferson fan for the rest of the year. Because, and Dalvin Cook. Yeah, and Dalvin Cook. Because I think they're going to turn it up. And it's, it's so weird to me. So being a Jet fan, I don't think anybody in any level of sport, and maybe this is just my bias of feeling how I'm feeling right now. I don't, I don't look at any other situation and feel like anybody understands because not to say teams don't struggle, but when you are a New York team, the surmountable of, of pressure that's added plus the media, plus everybody looking down on you, and the way the Jets have been for, I mean, you take two years out. You take 2009, 2010 out. The way they've been for 40 years, 30 years, is just a disaster. The craziest part, being in New York, Jeff Fan, obviously, over the last four years in the NFL, who do you think has the worst record in the NFL? Last four. Last four? Mm-hmm. Is it the Jets? Nope. It's the Giants. That's crazy to think that the Giants have a worse record than the Browns and the Jets. Because the Jets had those sneaky years where they didn't win anything, but they won like six games. The Giants have had like four, three, three, and four, I think. And even the Browns had a had like- five-win season, and then they snuck in, I think, six or seven last year. Yeah. Yeah, but I mean, it's crazy to think that the Giants are right in the, the, the worst statistical team over the last four years. It's, it's just wild to think about. But regardless, I wasn't, trying to, I wasn't trying to take my attention away from the Jets and divert it. Um, yeah, I mean, I've had my rants. The Jets are a disaster. I mean, so here's one thing I'll, I'll say to kind of comfort you. Because I think that you can make an argument. I'm gonna, the, the first statement's not going to be comforting, okay? <laughs> The second statement, I think, will be. Feels like therapy. There's an argument to be made that the Jets are the worst franchise in the history of the NFL. Sports, yes. Yep. Yeah, okay. History of sports. <laughs> I'm just going to stick to the NFL. Like, I, yeah, that's, it's up oh, there. Sorry. But there's, there's one team, man, that I, I put it worse. I think that they don't have the argument of the media right? That makes y'all unique is the New York media. That's a real thing. Mm-hmm. I don't fully get it, but we, we had that conversation. I have family from New York. So mm-hmm. like I, I've grown up every year going to New York, sometimes twice a year. So I've kind of gotten to experience a bit of the sports culture there as I've gotten older. And so I have an idea, mm-hmm. just a small idea of what the media is, but the Detroit lions, mm. And hear me out, because if you look at the history of football, I could argue that two of the greatest players to ever play at their respective positions played for the Detroit Lions. Mm -hmm. Barry Sanders at running back, right, who I think that's a strong argument 
for best yeah. running back of all time. 100%. I think he's and the other one, I'd have to kind of do some convincing, and I'd have to do it based off of longevity and everything, but Calvin Johnson, Megatron. I mean, regardless, I think whether he's the best, and I would say he's the best, he was definitely the most talented ever. I mean, and, biggest, and best athlete ever. And then if he finishes yeah. his career. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, where does he sit statistically if he finishes his career? And he plays with Stafford for years and years. Both of those guys quit football. And quoted because the Detroit Lions made them lose their love of the game. The Detroit Lions have taken away two all-time greats from us far too soon. That is something that not even your New York Jets can say y'all have accomplished. That's true. That's, that's true. that's hey, and y'all have Namath. Yeah, that's, you know what's crazy? And it's, it's so funny. I mean... As a Jet fan, you love Namath, but I always, oh, make fun. I always make fun with my dad because my dad, like, loved Johnny. Like, that was his guy. Like, he grew up on him. Like, this was everything. And I'm, I, I always make fun of him. I'm like, you know, Joe Namath almost had more interceptions and touchdowns in his career. And my dad laughs every – and my, he doesn't laugh, actually. He gets very angry. But it's true. I mean, Namath is this godsend guy who he was. He got us a title. He called it and all that stuff. But he was never – it was the I mean, attitude, he, man. It was the attitude. He was a he, rock star. Yep. Yeah. Like, that's the thing, yeah. People don't realize, and I'm not saying like drama, right? Yeah. But kind of the same, because it's all relative, right? Relative to eras. Mm. He was to the NFL then what Odell is now. Like, with mm. the rock star persona, like that was Joe Namath. And it's all relative to eras. But you didn't see guys sitting on the sideline in fur coats mm-hmm. back then. You don't see that now. But there was Broadway Joe rocking a fur coat. So y'all, y'all at least have that. And and for the Jets right now, I mean, your hope now is that um, Lawrence is in the picture. Your hope now is that Lawrence is in your in your visuals. If they get the number one pick, they're taking Lawrence. I don't think that's a question. And I look around the rest of the schedule, and there's no winnable games. And it's not like any other year where I could say there's no winnable games, but the Jets have a – they have an NFL roster, so they can sneak one here or there. Like a weird one, the Raiders, they could take them out. You know, not this year. I mean, this year, there, there's literally no chance. I mean, I don't want to say no chance and then they beat somebody, but there's no chance. If you couldn't beat the Dolphins, and I know the Dolphins are playing well, I'm not going to counter. They're, they're building something there. But that was your – them and the Broncos three weeks ago, two weeks ago, was oh, your, yeah. your only shot to win a game. And that's fine with me. I would prefer not going 0-16, but if that means we get Trevor Lawrence, then I can sign myself up for that. So here's the question I have for you there. Mm-hmm. And this this isn't going to be a happy one, right? Because mm-hmm. it, it's going to require a bit of thought. Is it worth even drafting Lawrence if Adam Gase is still the head coach? Okay, I'm going to answer this in two parts. The first part is if that is the situation, then no. That's the first part you would – if. but the second part is I – seeing what I see in the media, I think there's 0% chance he returns, I think. I do won't. too, but – there is part of yeah, there is part that goes. Why is it going so long? I think realistically, what it's coming down to now is that um, Joe Douglas, the GM, knows right now Adam Gase is his shield. He's the best possible shield to hold in front of him, 
And Douglas hasn't made any moves that that would make you feel like he doesn't belong there, like he should get fired. There's nothing that Douglas, Douglas has been there for, I think, a little over a year. No, and the moves y'all have made yeah. have been, like, I, that's, that's to me what's so incredible about this, because y'all got Quinn and Williams in the draft. Yeah. You got C.J. Mosley. You got Le'Veon Bell. You don't have Le'Veon anymore. Yeah. But- and we're probably, most likely, by the time this thing turns in next year, we probably won't have Mosley anymore either. He'll probably get cut. With and you might not have Quinn and Williams, from what I'm reading I in the media. wouldn't be surprised. Um, I would hope, because it's his draft pick, he would hang on to him a little longer. Wait, no, he didn't draft him. Year Douglas, before. Yeah, he didn't, because Douglas, this was his first draft, so he has no tie to him. But m- back to my point, Douglas knows how the New York media works. So he knows, even though he's done nothing wrong, they can call for him too. So what he's doing is he's keeping Gase held out in front of him like, no, this is the guy you want. This is this is who you want until the season's over. I, I, I really feel – I don't know how much longer they can go with it, but I really feel like they may keep him the whole season to ensure that – because if you put an interim in there, there's no promises that this team could, could just play better. I mean, not yeah, that's, that's, that's a problem at this point. Exactly. So is it, it's almost weird to think that way, but if you're Douglas and you know that Lawrence is there and you know, you can have a generational talent, you got to be like, well, if I just keep Ace here, we win nothing. I get Lawrence. I think I could do that. <laughs> to your point about Lawrence, this is going to sound weird, right? And I think a lot of people, when they, when they hear me say this, they'll raise their eyebrows. But when they hear me explain it, I think they'll get where I'm coming from. Mm. He was anointed as a world beater his freshman year because he was. You know what I mean? Like, he yeah. went out there and slayed the giant as a mm-hmm. freshman and did it correctly, yeah. incredibly. His sophomore year was, in, was, was very good. Mm-hmm. But it wasn't just me. There were people kind of looking at it and going, Justin Fields could catch him yeah. for the number one quarterback. Mm-hmm. Because it's not like Lawrence was playing bad and like playing to lose the spot. Yeah. But what I mean when I say Lawrence almost had a disappointing year last year is that the best football he'd played up until this year mm-hmm. was the two playoff games. You get what I'm saying? That yeah. he played where he beat Notre Dame and then Bama. That was, that was the best football he played even through any game last season. Mm-hmm. This, this season, he's playing different, man. Like, some of the throws he's making, he's making them to almost a point of, like, make it known that I don't struggle with this even 10% of the time. Anymore. Yeah. Right. And make no mistake, everybody who's listening, when I say he had a disappointing season, he was still the number one quarterback to be taken. It was, it almost was like, I don't want to say it, I don't want to put it out there, but it was almost like he got lazy. And I don't want to say that in a rude way, saying someone was lazy at their craft. That's not what I really mean. I just don't know how much there was for him to grow at that age. That's true, too. And now he's hitting a point where. It was funny. He made a throw on Saturday. I was watching that game, and he made the throw. Well, the the throws he made, the good ones were unbelievable. The one throw he got picked off on on the it was a deep ball. They looked like the receiver and him kind of got mixed up, and then the corner 
outran the receiver. Well, he ran the route for him basically. So, but it was the, I look at those. I I I love looking at guys who are going to be in the draft, like Lawrence or Fields or years before, and I like to look at their mistakes, and I like to look at the drive following, and exactly how they respond to throwing a ball that whether he got crossed up or not, it was not a good throw. I don't I don't know what the situation was. I'm not in their heads, but to him to come back and then throw dimes. So I like to look at that. There's guys I've looked at through, because I'm big on, once it comes for um, like mock draft season, I always put out my own like uh, draft notebook. Where I, get, I like, did my first one thing. last year. It was a, so, it was a ton of fun. I love it. So I like to look at tape and I like to look at these guys. And you, there's guys that throw an interception or a bad throw and they don't recover for two, three drives. And that is what scares me about a guy. Lawrence is a guy, he made a mistake, he doesn't look at Lawrence yeah. is playing – do you think you can operate at a much higher level than what he's operating at now? Because, look, what, what he and Burrow did are different, mm-hmm. right? Because it's a totally different style offense. Burrow's offense was literally meant to lull you to sleep Mm-hmm. Not as in a, a boring scheme, but to lull you to sleep with the power back that was Clyde Edwards-Hilaire, get you coming up, and mm-hmm. then Joe Burrow was going to drop a dime over top to those weapons outside. Yep. That's not really Clemson's game. Clemson yeah. is much more balanced, right? Yeah. They like to just kind of take everything in stride where LSU was very domineering last mm-hmm. year. They wanted to dominate you on offense. I, I don't know that you could operate on a higher level mm-hmm. than what Lawrence is right now. One of the comps I've had for Trevor Lawrence, and it's not – I want to make it clear. I'm not saying he's Jared Goff. Not what I'm saying. I think he's Jared Goff on steroids. I think the way that system's run, the way – he looks – I should say looks similar to the way the Rams run Goff. The spread out, I feel like he's best when he's spread out. You can run the ball dominantly. You could do things that are different and creative – like I said, Lawrence is 10 times the guy that got this. 10 times. But I see similarities in their game. I see what, yeah. I see similarities in their game. But, and everyone goes, Trevor Lawrence is the best prospect since Andrew Luck. I think he might be better at this level than Andrew Luck was. It's very close, but. Well, here's, here's the point to be made there, right? Andrew Luck, I don't think they ever won a conference championship because they had the ducks because i think oregon one and of those harbaugh has never won a conference champ that's neither here nor there but yeah. he was the head co- lawrence is a true freshman beaten alabama team that had tua you know what i mean like that the year before they had just done second and 26 and tua had a full year as the starter mm-hmm. and it's not that clemson beat them clemson crushed them and Trevor Lawrence crushed them. Mm. And so already, I think you could argue that as a prospect-wise, he is further ahead because he has things in his repertoire that uh, he's one of maybe how many freshman quarterback, I don't know the number, I'd have to look it up, to just dominate a Saban defense. Yeah, I'm sure it's few. Because Saban's very, he's very similar to NFL styles of like the Patriots or the Steelers where – when you get a rookie quarterback or a young quarterback, they know how to completely take them out of the game by taking away their easy route, their easy hots, their easy plays, and easy calls. So 
that's usually what happens with a safe in defense and didn't happen there. I mean, the thing with Lawrence though is he's the kind of prospect that can change your plans completely. I mean, yeah. If Darnold was in this situation and last year, let's just say, I don't know if the Jets uh, – Burrow was – no, Burrow was pretty legit too. I, I'm, I'm looking at years, maybe like a year where – like a. If y'all could have gotten Joe Burrow, I think y'all have taken Joe Burrow. I think so too. But the point is with Lawrence, I think he could change a lot of teams' plans. I think he, the Jets would change their plans. I think the Giants would consider giving up on Daniel Jones. I think if the Browns got into that spot, I could see them considering – changing their mind on Baker Mayfield. It's that type of prospect that can literally... You have to wonder if my Vikings continue to slide. Oh, I think if the Vikings ended up giving them a pick, I think there's there's no... I think it's... I think they would take Lawrence. Yeah, like, if, as we continue to slide, Ray Lance and Justin Fields become very real territory. Yeah. And that, that kind of gets me to something I've been dying to ask you because you said you've done mock drafts, so... Mm. I want you to do one player on offense, one on defense for this okay. coming up draft. To you, who are two standout guys? It can be just anything from your household name guys to someone that's super under the radar that you just have been super high on. Under the radar, I'm not there yet with under the radar, but I will say that I loved – Loved and love um, Dylan Moses from Alabama. I think he's hurt this year, or he opted out this year. He was hurt last year. And last year, but he's he's costing himself money, man, right now. Yeah. Uh, and I don't know how much of it is his fault because the the defensive coordinator that when you get on Twitter you see a lot of people saying that they need to fire. He is the inside linebacker coach. And that mm -hmm. is exactly where defense, or I'm sorry, offenses are attacking that Alabama mm -hmm. defense, and they shouldn't. Those yeah, two I, linebackers for Bama are uber talented. I I just from first time I saw him on the field, I, I love Dylan Moses. I just think he's as talented as it comes. Oh, I he know, is super talented. The injury doesn't cost him too much, but super talented. Offensive side of the ball, another Bama guy, um, Devonta Smith. I think he he goes under the radar because for, he's not Judy, he's not Waddle. But I think he's just up there with them. I don't think he's that far off. He reminds me a lot of Beckham, a lot of Beckham when I see him run a route. And so, you know who he reminds me of? Okay. To me, he's A.J. Green. Mm. Like, he's A.J. Green come back in the sense that, like, he can run routes so nice. Yeah. But Devontae Smith, you know, if you look at him, he's got such a, the, some of the tiniest legs I've mm -hmm. ever seen. But he is so physical mm -hmm. in and out of his breaks. Like he – and he's got the best hands maybe in college football. And I've never seen – whether it was last year, whether it was Judy, uh, Ruggs um, – who's the third one I'm missing last year? It was two last year. Judy and Ruggs? I'm missing Judy, one. they were the two taken in the first round last year. So Judy and Ruggs were the two, and then this year would be Waddle and Smith. So every receiver that plays at Bama, they always seem to finish their routes. They always seem to come back to the ball, and they find the ball. They'll come back five, six yards back to the route. It's just something they do. They're always finishing plays. That's a, that's a saving thing, I'm sure. But they finish their plays on offense. Now, on defense? I don't know that it is a saving thing. And this okay. is just an interesting little um, fact, right? Mm -hmm. If you look, there's a block in Florida 
and it, it might not be a literal block, but there's an area in Florida, right, mm -hmm. that might be home to the most talented grounds for receivers in the nation. Okay. I'm going to give you a list of guys that grew up playing together. Okay. Amari Cooper. Okay. Calvin Ridley. Riley Ridley. Jerry Judy. And Lamar Jackson. All grew up playing backyard football Jesus. together. <laughs> I don't know what they had in the water there, but when you talk about some of the most electric football players in the NFL, check, check, check. Yeah. I mean, Riley Ridley, I'm not exactly sure where he is now, but in Chicago. College, He's in Chicago. Yeah, in college. <laughs> Let yeah. me tell you what. Yeah, he was a he was an absolute monster. I mean, all those guys that you just mentioned are are just absolute freaks. But you asked me the draft thing. Who are the two guys you're looking at, underrated guys? So, I'm a little biased here, right? And I'm going to yeah. start with offense. Mm -hmm. I, I agree with you, Devontae Smith. I think that he is – so, my old roommate, it's interesting. We were texting back and forth, and he used to play corner at UTSA, which isn't okay. a, a super large college, but it's but, University of Texas, yeah. San Antonio. And you know how Texas is with their football, so – they got some good players down there, man. Marcus Davenport came from there. So mm -hmm. we were texting back and forth. And I think that by the end of this year, Devontae Smith could have done enough to surpass Jamar Chase as mm -hmm. the number one receiver in this draft. Only because Jamar Chase didn't play this year. Sure. Right? So how do you weigh that? Right? Because we know how yeah. good Jamar Chase yeah. is, but do we penalize Devontae Smith for having 200-yard, 160-yard games against the best defense in college football? Mm -hmm. That's rough. But he's not my guy. It's Jalen Waddle, man. And it's, it's because it's the biggest fear I have for Henry Ruggs mm -hmm. is because I think that when the Raiders drafted Henry Ruggs, they're looking for the next Tyreek Hill. Mm. that's not rugs that's not yeah. his game right he's a different type of receiver yeah but waddle waddle is legitimately the closest thing to tyreek hill that has been since tyreek hill mm -hmm. and because of that i think teams are going to be looking to get him if teams can get him in that teen range yeah i think that they will be trying to do some gamesmanship to get there see I'm kind of similar to your thought process, but reversed, where I lean Devonta right now, but I think Waddle has the ability come the end of the season to jump everybody at the receiver, and I think he can go a lot higher than people think. Um, I, just, I just think he could. I, and it, it's plausible, right? Because him and Mac Jones have always had a good rapport. Yeah. Going back to a few years ago, this is a stat that's going to blow people's mind because I think it was 2018. Mac Jones holds the longest touchdown pass in Alabama football history to Jalen Waddle, and it was a 94-yard uh, touchdown, and all it was was a little slant route. And Waddle caught it and was just gone because you can't catch him. Yep. And it's, it's his ability to run routes. It's his ability to return kicks, averaging 24.8 yards per punt return last year in the mm. SEC. That's incredible. But it's also his physicality, man. Yeah. Like, you see the guy jumping up and mossing people, and I love the chip on his shoulder because he's a bit of a shorter guy, and he's always talking to the DBs. 
I, I love it because you have to play like that to be as successful as he is at that size. My other guy isn't really a surprise. Hmm. Um, he's certainly not like an under-the-radar guy. An under-the-radar guy to me would be the Virginia Tech corner that sat yeah. out Farley. Caleb Farley. Caleb Farley? Yeah. Yeah. Kid's great. He's bigger too, right? He's like 6'2". He's a little... Yeah. And even that's not very under the radar, but it's yeah. just I think a lot of people are oh, going like to forget about him. He's great. Yeah. But my, my guy for defense is Micah Parsons. Mm. out of Penn mm -hmm. State, man. Mm -hmm. I remember when he was coming out of high school. You watched his tape, and you legitimately didn't know where he would play. Not because it was a situation where you're like, I don't know where this guy fits. He could play everywhere. It's, it was almost uh, hard because you're thinking, okay, well, dang, if I put him at defensive end, I don't get to have him at linebacker. Yeah. And, man, if I put him there, I can't use him at running back. Like, it, it was – he's so talented. It was hurting your team almost because he could do everything, and he's done nothing but show it in college. Yeah. I mean, he's, he's the real deal. I think Waddle and Parsons are my two. I like Parsons, and I, it's probably an unpopular opinion. Now, I believe in using guys and their all over the field as versatility. Um, I like Parsons almost not as the mic, but I like him – leaning inside sometimes I think he's that talented that he can do that um but the only issue I have with moving guys around now is maybe it's just the system he went up to but um Simmons from Clemson or Clemson Isaiah Simmons went to Arizona and they have not figured out what to do with him yet no and you make a great point right that this is the caveat right the only reason I think Parsons is different is because of his literal build mm. And here's what I mean, mm -hmm. because Simmons is a weird built guy, right? Like he's, he's long and you don't, he could, he could literally play safety mm -hmm. the way when you look at him, the way he's built, cause he's kind of skinny for a linebacker, but he's mm -hmm. all the physicality of a linebacker. Correct. But I'm going to give you another name. That's kind of the same storyline that fits into your argument perfectly. Jabril Peppers. Mm -hmm. I mean, God, the guy who was up for a Heisman, you know, we thought he would, and he's just never panned out in the NFL. And me and my roommate from UTSA, we used to argue about this all the time. Because yeah. I'm, I'm kind of hard on Michigan, right? Harbaugh just irks me in a very specific way. Like I've always felt like he just tries too hard, right? And yeah. we'll, we'll talk about that on a different occasion. Yeah. But I, I always thought that they were doing him a disservice because he'd be at safety, at corner, at linebacker, at nickel, at dime. Mm -hmm. I think that the only thing I can say for Parsons is that he actually is in a linebacker's body that yes. has played linebacker. Yes. So I think any transition will be easier for him. But yeah, and I think that that's a good point that a lot of people aren't going to look at, and that's a very, very real concern yeah. that a lot of people aren't going to address. Yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily compare him in more, more ways than not. So I say as soon as I just think the comparison of let him play a position – Absolutely. Once he gets the NFL, he can. If you want to be an edge rusher, let him be an edge rusher. But know that he can do these other things. And I think you you talked about Peppers. I've been saying it for a couple of years since he went to the Giants, so two years. Um, I would like to see him more inside the box. I think he can come up and hit and play a little more in the in the run. I think he's better than people think in that. Not to say he's like Jamal Adams because nobody's like Jamal Adams, but Jamal Adams. 
on the Jets last year ended up playing, I think, over 40% of his snaps off the edge. So he was playing in pass rush roles. Now, I'm not saying Pepper's body type is like that. His ability to get to quarterbacks like that, no. But whatever you're using, doing right now with Peppers isn't working. So to try to throw him more in the box and try to let him play the middle of the field a little more, I don't think it's the worst option. I think No, you, I agree completely. Yeah. And it, it reminds me of – I feel like there's been so many guys over the past few years that have had that same kind of thing where they can play all over and it hurts them. Like uh, I don't know if you remember um, Stefan Anthony, Stephon Anthony. Yep. He ended up going to the Saints and the Dolphins at some point. And he was a guy that was fast enough to play to cover. He was fast enough to cover. He could blitz at times and he could play the middle. And he just never found a spot. He was, he was, could do everything, but nothing great. It was one of the curious cases. I loved him coming out of college. I thought he could be a guy that can do like, this was before we talked, a lot has talked about in the NFL right now about how versatility on offense has been crazy. I mean, with all these offensive minds, they're using guys in different ways. I think defense are doing the same thing. Oh, I yeah. They're using guys all over the ball. If you look at the statistical uh, – the, every game, you look at the percentage of snaps, you'd be shocked at where guys are playing. So, Stephon Anthony, I think, was a couple years too soon, personally, but he still needed a position. These guys – you look at Jamal Adams, who last year, like I just mentioned – he played, I think, only like 30% of his snaps as a safety. So he played edge rusher. He played middle of the field. He did. He, he would play some corner, which he shouldn't have because he's not that good in coverage, but not the point. Jamal Adams is a freak and he's an elite talent. But these guys are playing all over the place on the defense. Like one of the cases I always laugh at, I think it was Sheldon Richardson, who was when he was drafted by the Jets, he was at Missouri. He played X amount of percentage of his snaps as a linebacker, a middle linebacker, Sheldon Richardson, and it worked. It's just – and I think a lot of those thoughts in college of using guys all over is finally translating to the NFL, and I think it's the best thing for the future of the NFL. So it's it's a double-edged sword, right? Because on our end, from a viewer's end, absolutely. Mm-hmm. But now reverse yourself, right? I want you to put yourself in the situation of you're the GM. Mm-hmm. And as, as messed up as it is, that's investment. Mm-hmm. You get what I'm saying? So are you comfortable putting your star defensive tackle in a position that he might play 50 times a year to risk that injury? Well, yeah. I need to make clear quick before I wouldn't play Sheldon Richardson or a linebacker. I, no, want, fair I, want, I want that to be out there. <laughs> fair enough. But yeah, yeah, yeah. Just that, that I know what you're saying. Situation. Yep. You know what I'm saying? Like, and personally, I agree with you. I'd yeah. love to see it more. I'm just playing devil's advocate into oh. why I really don't think we will. And as much as I hate it, I don't blame them. Yeah, no. And I, I get what you're saying. I think for me, the perfect fit right now, if you're building a defense and you want to be – have guys all over. I think the perfect fit right meet for me right now is a linebacker who could play Mike, who could do the outsides, who can rush the passer. Not necessarily a guy that is going to go play safety at the same time. I don't necessarily love that, but if I'm a GM and I'm building my linebacking core, I'm trying to build guys that can do all three spots and rush the passer. That's, I think, my point is 
I'm not necessarily looking for the guy that can play 11 positions, but the guy that can do that whole linebacking core can play every single spot and do it the best of his abilities, and you can rotate them in and out, switch them around, and that's kind of my point. Yeah, and I think it's uh, – as far as inside linebackers go, there's going to be some good ones – but I think a lot of, of scouts are going to kind of be frothing at the mouth because Georgia has the one to get next, right? Mm-hmm. But he's a freshman. Nicobe Dean yeah. is everything advertised and way more. I mean, that kid is unreal at the, at the linebacker position. Um, he's going to be the next hot thing in the NFL. I, I think it's, it's pretty comfortable to say that. And it's interesting you bring up like Simmons struggles because there was a player from Alabama, you might be able to guess him, that is one of my favorite players in Alabama history. It's a recent guy. But I was worried about him going into the NFL, not because of how talented I thought he was, but for some of that same stuff, is he became king of everything, master of nothing. What team was he drafted by? Drafted by the Dolphins. Hmm. He doesn't play for them anymore. Oh, I should know this, though, because I love those guys. He plays for the Steelers now. Oh, Fitzpatrick. Minka. Yeah. Because, because as, a, as a freshman, Saban knew that Minka was good enough to throw on the field. But when he was a freshman, that Alabama defense was so good. For people that don't remember, Cyrus Jones, Eddie Jackson, and uh, – Jennings was a corner. Mm-hmm. Then they had Marlon Humphrey as another corner. Levi Wallace is another corner. I think every player from that team made it to the NFL. Every player on that defense, all 11. Now, whether they're still in the NFL or not, another story, yeah. they all made it. That was an NFL defense. But moving forward, it became a point to where, like, Saban just kind of had to put Minka wherever our weak spot is because he completely nullified it. Mm. The guy is a walking coach, man. Yeah. Like, I mean, like a 90-year-old ball coach that's seen it all. That's Minka's spirit animal. Is He is a coach on the field. He's so supremely smart on that yeah. football field. But I was worried because I didn't know if he'd be able to adjust to having a position and then I was worried because I didn't know how teams would look to use him. But, you know, whatever the Steelers are doing, that looks like it's working out very well. He's brought that defense back to life. I mean, not to say they were a dead defense, they weren't like that, but he's brought them back to like the Steelers of what, we're, what we were used to growing up, like the mid-2000s, the 2010, 2011, like those type of defenses. He's kind of bringing them back to that point. And, I mean, the Dolphins – there's two ways to look at the Dolphins trading. The one way is, why would you trade a guy like Michael Fitzpatrick? That's the one way to look at it. But the other way to look at it is they got a first-round pick for a guy who they didn't really know how to use. And sometimes that's not necessarily – I mean, it's not a good thing for your organization to go out and say, we didn't know how to use a guy. But if you can admit your mistake and get something from that mistake, it works. I am so glad you said that because there's one thing in the NFL. I understand why people don't do it mm-hmm. because it means your job. Yeah. But I wish it didn't. I wish that the opposite meant your job. Yeah. And what I'm talking about is something you just alluded to. I have no problem with them trading him 
if they were to just admit like, okay, he's, he's a good player. We just don't know how to use him and what we do. We, we messed up. If you do that within like your first few years, I don't hold that against you. Mm -hmm. What I hold against you is when I'll give you a perfect example is Chicago and Trubisky. To me, they held on much longer than they should have to the point of now I blame you. If last year or in this past draft, they would have been like, okay, we're done. We're taking a quarterback. Like Mm -hmm. Trubisky might be the starter coming into this year, but we have already eyed our future. Yeah. I'm fine with all of them keeping their jobs. But at this point, I'm like, you you sailed the ship into the fire. And now you've kind of, if you would have maybe got rid of Trubisky a year year ago, maybe two years ago, you give him a chance to have a second life. I don't think he has that now. Exactly. Everybody wins. That's kind of what happened with uh, the Jaguars and Bortles, where Bortles could have had a second shot. He didn't get – he went to the Rams. He backed up last year, but his second shot finally came this year, and he got cut already by the Broncos. So, But the one thing I'll say about the Bears, and I think what made them interesting, was I fully believe that Matt Matt Nagy hates Trubisky. I fully believe that. But I think Ryan Pace – Loves Trubisky because he kind of means his job. He drafted Trubisky to trade. I think he traded up for him. They only traded one pickup, but they traded up for him. Um, and basically, Matt Nagy was waiting for that first mistake. Because you look at Mitch, when he got benched, they were 3-0, I think. Or, uh, they were undefeated. Yeah, undefeated. So he made one mistake in that game, and Nagy was like, all right, time to go. Like, he couldn't wait to get Trubisky off that field and put bowls in. He could not wait. And – that's probably an issue in itself. Like, I, I am weird with the Bears. I think Matt Nagy is a hell of a football coach. I wish he would let somebody else call the plays on offense. And, and that's crazy to say because he is that, like, he's the guy. He's the offensive czar. He, he, he knows how to put plays together. But if you're, he's, I think he, he understands coaching. I just think give somebody else the playbook let them run it, and I think his career can extend. Because, I mean, they're, they're, they're the weirdest 5-1 and one team in the league, but they're doing it. <laughs> they're 5-1, and one, and they're a 5-1 and one team that I don't think any team in the NFL is particularly scared of. No, I mean, their defense is back. Their defense they're, is yeah, good. Yeah, their defense is back. But you know, that's, that's fine. But, I, I mean, even as bad as my Vikings are, I yeah. think we lose that game, yeah. but I, I'll put it like this. If, if you were to rate my division right now, I'd put us at the bottom, right? Mm-hmm. No doubt. Got to be realistic. But I'd put the Bears right above us, even though they're 5-1. and one. Yep. I'm more scared of Detroit. I'm more scared of Green Bay. And maybe it's because my Vikings have such a – just a terrible defense. Yeah. But – I get more afraid of the Bears as the season goes on, I think – if they continue it and they get to the playoffs and they can find a way to win that division, I don't know how, but if they find a way to win it and they get home field or anywhere that's cold, I think that defense can get in a messy game. And I think they can win that game, like win one of those really close games. It reminds me of what the Jets built for those two years, 2009, 2010, when they had Rex Ryan and they built the best defenses in the NFL. I think the problem you run into is do you think that they're optimized to beat Seattle or no you see what like and that's 
Yeah, I mean, I could see them beating a team like Tampa, which they already did, but I could see I could see that. that. I could see them knocking off if they got a weird matchup with the Packers. You know what I mean? Or the Saints. I Seattle's the one that the up temponess, I think, um could would, would would do them in. But I just think the Bears defensively can hold their own and I think they can keep themselves in a game. But that offense just isn't there. I mean, that offense can still grow though. That's the thing. You they have can. Montgomery, you can have games where you just let him run. And you can have games with you haven't really used Allen Robinson to his full effect yet. So there's so much more growth in that offense, but I don't know if Yeah, I I think that the part that's interesting specifically about the Bears and everything moving forward is the fact that they have Khalil Mack gives them a chance. Mm-hmm. Right? Like that's if Aaron Donald doesn't play in the NFL. We talk about Khalil Mack the way we talk about Aaron Donald. But then you have a guy like Eddie Jackson on the backside, and they give guys a lot of problems. But to me, a Seattle is that kryptonite because you have Russ who can get out of the pocket. And I think Seattle has one of the most, if not the most underrated wide receiver in the NFL. Mm-hmm. Um, he's a guy that every time he gets an opportunity – he finds himself on ESPN top 10 making incredible catches. Mm-hmm. And that's David Moore, number 83. He doesn't draw a lot of attention. But, man, every time that they throw him the ball, he's there. He's making plays. He's – I mean, you just look back to his big games he's had and against the corners mm-hmm. that he's done it against. He pieced up Marcus Peters twice in a year for, I think, 90 yards one game and over 100 the next. He pieced up Xavier Rhodes before Xavier Rhodes went, you know, haywire. Yeah. The guy is great. And when you have all those other weapons, and especially the way Seattle plays, you'd never guess, right? Like, oh, well, these receivers are as good as they are because everything is so off script. But – that's that Seattle team is going to be hard to beat because they're so. I don't. How do you, how do you go and prepare for Seattle? I think you focus on taking Russ out of the equation, whatever way you can, but it's almost impossible. But I don't know the exact answer to that question. I I think you pray. Because it, it's yeah. so strange, right? Because when you think about it, in theory, when you just look at their roster for the first time, you'd think this is a beatable team, right? Like, this is a beatable team. But then when you start thinking, okay, how are we going to attack them relative to how they're going to attack us? I just kind of come up with blanks as what you're supposed to do because everything everybody's ever tried to do against Russell I would think, the more I think about it, the only way I would consider beating them, and it's not stopping their offense, I think their defense is one of the worst we've seen them have for years. Maybe they grow and they get That's better true. as the season goes on, but I think if you can find a way to dominate that defense and take the clock away from the Seattle Seahawks, take, take time away from Russell Wilson, I think that's your best way to beat them. Yeah, I I think you make a good point there. Um, I think that that's probably the only way because I I don't look at that offense and think, okay, well, I know that they don't have the best offensive line, so we we can attack them there. But the problem is, is 
Russell Wilson is a guy where you'd almost rather keep him in the pocket mm-hmm. than have him get outside the pocket. Definitely. Because when he gets – like, he'll, he'll destroy you from inside the yeah. pocket. But he's <laughs> going to demoralize you from outside the pocket. Like, psych- psychologically, by the time the fourth quarter comes around, that defense is really not happy. You know? Um, and, and they have three weapons on the outside that they all can almost not be guarded one-on-one. Like, you almost need safety help on all three guys, whether it's Metcalf, Lockett, or Moore. You almost need safety help on every single one. So you need help on the back end, and then you need help in the front end because you need to keep a guy that's going to keep an eye on Russell Wilson. Even if you rush from the sides and keep him in the pocket, you still need a guy to keep your eyes on him. So now you have guys who are just watching people. So it, 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 it creates such a disaster. On the oh, it's havoc everywhere. It's just utter pandemonium. And that's, you know, one of the videos I made at the beginning of this year when this year started um, was that Clyde Edwards-Hilaire might have made the Kansas City Chiefs, in the grand scheme of things, unstoppable. Mm-hmm. And what I mean when I say that is the team to beat Kansas City, structurally-wise, looks to be Tennessee, mm-hmm. right? Baltimore is intriguing, but Baltimore doesn't play control as well as Tennessee does. They can't keep up with them. And that's what you have to do. You, you, in order to beat Kansas City, Mahomes can't have the ball. Yeah. Because you, you're not just beating Mahomes. You're beating Kelsey. You're beating Robinson, Watkins, Hill. Yeah. For God's sakes, Nicole Hardman Jr. is their fourth option. That's mm-hmm. just incredible. And now Le'Veon Bell. And now you add Le'Veon Bell. And it becomes this situation where I'm not saying they can play control ball like the Tennessee Titans, right? Tennessee is completely built on control ball. That's why Derrick Henry just went for 20 carries and 212 yards, right? That's nuts. The difference is, though, is that they can now play control ball well enough to where how does that style affect them now? Because you want to run the clock out? Okay, well, when we get the ball, we'll just run the clock out as well. The mm-hmm. difference is is we have Mahomes, too. So not only can we play this slowed offense, but when we need a touchdown, the betting now becomes Mahomes versus Tannehill. And who are you taking? Yeah. It's, it's an interesting thing. And then, like you said, we don't even talk about right now them having Le'Veon and what yeah. that looks like in that offense. And I think Le'Veon was brought in, too, to help the longevity of Belair. Uh, Absolutely. It's, it so is – workload off him for a year. It's the perfect one, too, right? Yeah. Like, I know it sounds cheap It's because it's, it's almost like the adage, the rich get richer. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? But from a structural s- standpoint – there's almost no better place for Le'Veon's career because he doesn't have to be the guy. You know what I mean? Like, they already have a guy who they're very certain, okay, Clyde Edwards is our future. Like, he is our future back. But now he gets to learn from Le'Veon all the while they're extending each other's careers, mm-hmm. right? Because now Le'Veon can truly flourish in what he does because you're not asking him to be out there for 40 plays a game. It's, it's going to be super fun to watch. It's absolutely great. So this show has been awesome. Talking, we just keep going. We could probably keep going for hours more. 
Oh, I have no doubt. <laughs> Definitely going to have you on again soon. Before um, we go, one more thing. Because it's it's such a big weekend this weekend. Yes. Go. Gaethje or Khabib? I'm a big guy with Khabib. I think he has the ability to take over the fight and basically not allow you to breathe for the whole fight. And I, I agree, man. As much as I think Gaethje, I think he's got a good plan, right? When yeah. he's like, I'm just going to damage him. He doesn't like being damaged. I think that that's about as good of a plan as you can possibly hope to have against Khabib. Just hit him a bunch. I don't think it works. No. Like, I, I think Khabib wins the fight, and I, you know, what happens after that, I don't know. But I just wanted, you know, that's such oh, a big no. fight. I didn't want to leave that untouched. Yeah, I uh, I love UFC here. I mean, we, oh, yeah. I did an interview, I don't know if you, I don't think you follow me at that point. I did an interview with um, Rivera, you know, um, the Bantam with Jimmy Rivera? Yeah. He's actually a really close friend of mine, so I did an interview with him a while back, and uh, he's awesome. But the point that's was, awesome. I love Khabib. I think Khabib is pound for pound, pound for pound, the best fighter in the UFC. I think he's suffocating. I think he could take out guys that are bigger than him in weight classes. I think he he wrestled a bear. I know he's. <laughs> and the best the best word I say every time I talk about Khabib is that he's like he could suffocate you. He's suffocating. He doesn't get off. He just he's violent. Yeah, he's he's very violent. Um, like yeah. <laughs> and, and that's the thing like when I, I I'll never forget the thing I did I'll, I'll leave it here but the thing I've always thought of like specifically with the the notion of like Connor versus Khabib mm. Connor's looking to end you right with that left he wants to end you Khabib is looking to hurt you yeah he doesn't want to end you in the first 30 seconds that's not what he does yeah he wants to actually break your will to yep. be in the cage. And once he feels like he's done that, where you're broken to where you're like, I just don't want to be here anymore. Yeah. That's when he gives you the mercy. Yeah. Of he's choking okay. you. You're done now. Yeah. And you that's the know. most savage thing about him. I yeah. think that there might be an argument to be made that he's the goat. Yeah. I mean, he's like one of those, um, I'm trying to think of what, the, what kind of bird it is, but like, you know, one of those big birds of prey that go in and they take a bird and they don't kill them, but they fly away with them from the nest. They take the bird wherever they want to go and then they just slowly, 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 slowly kill them. And that's kind of what could be this. He's just going to take you away and he's going to slowly take you down. And then once he's done playing, maybe he'll go, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to end this right now. I don't want him to go to decision, but we're good now. And yeah. I, if I had to give a prediction, I say Khabib in round three. Yeah, I think that that that's probably about where I am. I think that's probably that's, I'm probably the same because I don't think he'll go any deeper than that. But I don't think he finishes any quicker than that. Yeah. Um, the only thing the is, one. I think if he if he's going to lose to Gaethje, if he does lose, it's going to be early. I think if he loses, I think it's about because the longer that fight goes on, the more it turns to compete because the way his stamina he could control the fight, but. If Gagey catches him clean like he wants to a few times early, it could change the fight. And I think that would end earlier than round three. I think if it's Gagey, I think I'm saying round two, I think. Round one to two. Completely yeah. agree, man. I'm the exact same way. Yeah. All right. Well, again, this was a blast. Thank you for joining us. Ty, we're going to check out Thursday. Thursday is the next episode of the College Football on Mass. Yep. Yep. Looking forward to it. Looking forward to the, the shows on this network. Thank you guys for joining us. And yep, thank you.